You're right in D.C. with Gail Trotter. This is Gail Trotter, host of Right in D.C. Today, our guest is Mark Krikorian. Mark is the executive director of the Center for Immigration Studies. And Mark, we are so glad that you are joining us today. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Mark, you have on your Twitter bio that you are the leading theorist of immigration restriction in America. I think that's probably tongue-in-cheek, right? Well, actually, that was I quoted that. That's a quote from uh, someone who very much does not agree with me on immigration. Specifically, John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine, who's basically a you know, an unlimited immigration guy. So, um, so anyway, yeah, I mean, no, that's a real, it's a real quote. It's just not from a uh, friendly source, but it's (laughs) frankly more authentic maybe because it's not a friendly source. That's true. That's very good. Um, so you're an expert on immigration policy. You've been at this for a long time and I wanted to start out our discussion today talking about what is the hottest immigration story right now? Well, the immigration story uh, that overshadows everything else is the border disaster. I mean, crisis isn't even the word for it. The situation really is spinning out of control at the border uh, for a bunch of reasons that we can talk about. Um, We've created incentives for people to, uh, from Central America to just come up, especially if they bring kids with them, uh, and we just let them go. And so we've created this enormous incentive to come uh, and cross the border and say that you're claiming political asylum. Uh, and um, we let you go. Literally just let you go into the United States with a piece of paper. And uh, why wouldn't people come? I mean, in about a year and a half, something like, uh, I forget the exact number, but it was something like 2% of the entire population of Honduras has moved to the United States in just a year and a half. Uh, you know, this is only going to get worse if Congress and the administration don't start making some serious changes. Last month, this is in April, the Border Patrol apprehended almost 100,000 uh, people crossing between the ports of entry, in other words, crossing illegally. And that's up from the month before. It's uh, double what it was April of last year. It's seven times higher than the number of Border Patrol arrests in April of two years before that. So things really are spinning out of control. The uh, infrastructure to patrol the border is basically falling apart. And, you know, we're going to have to do something pretty fast if we have any intention of having a semblance of a border, because it's not just Central Americans. Let's just say all 17 million people from Guatemala move to the United States. Um, What about everywhere else in the world? I mean, it doesn't, the rules that we have now that say that if you have a kid with you, we just let you go into the country don't just apply to Central Americans. They just happen to be the ones who are closest and have, uh, you know, a, an immediate incentive to to leave. Uh, you know, pa- Pakistan, Bangladesh, Congo, they're all full of people who have kids. And those are all countries that are, frankly, not very appealing places. And you're going to start seeing, you're already starting to see a flow of people. They call them extracontinental illegal aliens. In other words, they're not just non-Mexican because there's always been a term OTM, other than Mexican, which is the Border Patrol term. But, and now a majority of the people they catch are non-Mexican, most, almost all from Central America, but you're starting to see people, as they say, extracontinental. In other words, from Africa, Asia, the Middle East, Europe. Uh, I actually have seen some uh, gypsies from Romania who crossed, somehow got a visa to Canada Cross the Canadian border, which is, there's nothing there at all, just a guardrail, literally, and uh, brought a kid with them and said, uh, you know, they're seeking asylum, and uh, they did it because they know they'll just be let go. Uh, so, I mean, this is one of, this is probably one of the most serious border crises we've faced, and it's the, it's building up into what 
Germany experienced or Europe experienced back in 2015, where there was that huge flow of a million plus people because the German prime minister, in effect, just invited them in and then thought better of it after a million people came in one year. We may end up with a million of these Central Americans, basically bogus asylum seekers coming in in you know over the next uh, 12 months it's possible and so this is something that not only is the most pressing pressing migration issue it's entirely possible that this is going to be the issue in next year's election especially if the economy stays good we don't get involved in any new wars and all this stuff you see on twitter about who uses what bathroom and who said what when he was 20 years old that doesn't really resonate, I don't think, with the public. This is going to resonate with the public. It's interesting that you link this to the possible 2020 presidential contest. Isn't this a repeat of the main issue of the 2016 presidential contest? Isn't that essentially how President Trump, I mean, there, there's a lot of speculation about how President Trump was able to go from never being elected to anything to being elected president on his essentially first try. Uh, but certainly immigration was what, I mean, from the moment he came down the stairwell in Trump Tower on Fifth Avenue in New York City, he was talking about immigration. And it seems like as you're saying, just from the numbers, it's more of a problem now than it was in 2015 when he declared his candidacy. Can you explain that? Yeah, you know, absolutely. This is why the president won. I mean, there's really no question. This is certainly why he won the primary, because, uh, you know, there are 16 other Republicans. And shame on all of them for not really grappling with this issue effectively. And Trump came in and basically just snapped the nomination out from under them. The There are some differences, though. The two differences, the first one, is that the situation is much worse, as you suggest, much worse. It was pretty bad under Obama. In fact, the last year and a half or so under Obama, he kind of gave up even pretending to enforce immigration law. Because earlier in the Obama administration, they actually did try to make an effort. Some of it was um, insincere, or not. I won't even say insincere. Some of it was just basically deceptive because they cooked the books in some regards. But the point is they were trying to look tough on immigration, show that they were serious so that when Congress um, uh, you know, came up with an immigration bill, they, the administration would be able to say, look, you can take us seriously on this. We're not just letting everybody come in. Well, however um, dishonest that may have been early in the Obama administration, toward the end when they realized that they weren't going to get anything through, the Gang of Eight bill, if you remember that, um, oh, yes. spectacularly uh, failed, didn't pass the House. Once that happened, the Obama people just said, you know, we don't need to keep pretending. So, you know, they basic, I won't say they entirely stopped Im enforcing immigration law, but it was pretty bad. We are now in a much worse situation because we had a huge drop in illegal immigration when the president was elected and inaugurated. It went down to levels that we hadn't seen in, gener in a more than a generation. The thing is, it wasn't a lasting effect. It was kind of a wait and see. Is Trump going to start, you know, machine gunning people on the border? You know, let's hold off and see what it's like. Well, when they found out that the president, in many respects, is handcuffed, is prevented from responding the in a way that's necessary, you saw the numbers go back up, and now they've exceeded anything that we saw during the Obama administration or, or, you know, I mean, it's there, there were a few years during W's, George W. Bush's administration that were higher, but even that was a very temporary thing. So the, so my point is the first difference is situation is much worse than it was in 2015, 2016. The second difference is the president has been president now for two and a half years almost. And you know, 
the, a lot of people are saying, okay, well, why is this getting worse when you're president? Right. And so, and so this is the way it's going to play out, I think, next year is going to depend on whether the president can show that he's doing everything in his power to stop this and that the reason his you know the reason he hasn't been as successful as he would want to be is because the the loopholes in the law are such that he's constrained from doing what's necessary and uh, one of the big loopholes is something called the Flores settlement. Uh, there's no reason to get into the weeds about what it is, but there was a lawsuit during the Clinton administration. Clinton people basically were friendly with the people bringing the lawsuit, so they settled. And the settlement said no minor, no illegal immigrant under 18 years old who's caught by the Border Patrol can be detained in immigration detention for more than 20 days. What happened then um, under Obama was the judge who had uh, okayed that lawsuit settlement said, yeah, and that also applies to minors who come with their parents as well, even though that wasn't part of the deal. Right. So what that means is if you are an illegal immigrant now, you bring a kid with you, could be your kid, you could be lying about having rented the kid, or maybe it's some relative's kid, that all those things happen. If you bring a kid with you, uh, you can't be held. He can't be held, the kid, more than 20 days. So either you let the kid go and deliver him to relatives or a shelter or something else and keep the adult in custody until whatever case is resolved. But that's separating families. We don't do that anymore. And so you end up just letting the whole, letting the parents go too, or, or the ostensible adult that he came with, the ostensible parents. And uh, it's, it's essentially guaranteed. The smugglers know that. And so the smugglers advertise in Central America. They literally have radio ads in Central America saying, bring a kid with you and they're just going to let you go into the United States. And you'll have to show up for a hearing, maybe if you don't. How is ICE, which is having enough trouble just finding criminals to deport, how is ICE going to find some ordinary schmo who doesn't show up for his hearing? They don't. They don't even look for him. They can't. So that um, until that loophole and there's a few others are fixed, the president can take some steps, but there's a limit to what he can do. And so my point on the election here to wrap it up is that if the president can persuade voters that he is doing everything he can and the responsibility for the continuation of this disaster is on the Democrats in Congress, then it will be a very powerful uh, issue for him in next November. If, on the other hand, he's seen as not having produced the goods, not having um, delivered, then uh, it could hurt him, uh, depending on who the Democratic candidate is. When we're talking about all of these very large numbers of illegal immigration, I think maybe people don't understand, or maybe I didn't understand previously, that this is all cumulative. We're not talking about uh, there's a million here, a million there. You know, you talked about how many came in under President Obama illegally, how many came in under President Bush. So it's not just the case that. Uh, obviously, some people self-deport, as they say, and go back to the country of origin, but many of them stay here. So when, when you're talking about the impact of this illegal immigration, it's kind of like the deficit versus the debt. You have deficits every year, but the debt is this cumulative amount of indebtedness the United States have. And so is it kind of equivalent with illegal immigration that not only we have the monthly flow and the yearly tally, but it's something that is a cumulative effect on the nation. Yeah, I mean, to uh, continue your uh, uh, analogy to government spending, you know, a million illegal aliens here, a million illegal aliens there, it starts to add up to real numbers, you know. <laughs> um, the, uh, but you're right, there is, first of all, there is some churn. I mean, there are always people who leave. 
So it's not like you can just add up the numbers straight. And the other point to make also is that, and this was more true in the past, Border Patrol arrest numbers often count the same people over and over again if they don't succeed, ah. um, except that that's less true now because in the old days, and I'm talking, you know, 10, 15 years ago, 15 years ago, numbers were uh, comparable to what we're going to see this year. There were a lot, they call it recidivism. In other words, the same illegal immigrant arrested multiple times in a year. That happened a lot. Nowadays, these people coming with kids, they turn themselves in to the Border Patrol. They're not arrested multiple times because they got caught and sent back and kept trying. They're literally flagging down the Border Patrol. In fact, there was one instance a few months ago in a remote part of New Mexico where smugglers knew there weren't a lot of agents. There's no meaningful border fence. It's just a short thing to keep trucks from driving over. They dropped like 200 illegal immigrants off by bus. They just bust them there, said, here, hop over that thing and you'll be in the United States. The, the illegal immigrants were looking for Border Patrol agents who couldn't find them. And they ended up going to the Border Patrol office and knocking on the door <laughs> to turn themselves in. Wow, so, that's yeah, bold. <laughs> it's, it's, well, that's the whole point, that they want right. to turn themselves in. Right. So, my, so my point is, so, I mean, the basic point that you're trying to make is correct, that this adds up. And if in the current year or in the, let's say in the next 12 months, we end up with one million of these Central Americans turning themselves in, some of them will actually win asylum, a relatively small percent. I think the there was a recent report, a bipartisan report on this issue that estimated something like 13% of those who utter the magic words that they've been coached to say about asylum actually get asylum. So they would stop being illegal aliens, but all the rest of them aren't. So you're talking about close, maybe close to a million uh, maybe let's say 850,000 new illegal aliens this year. Let's say what that is. I mean, let's let's just stipulate that as a number. Some people will, you know, leave. But let's, you know, that could be three quarters of a million addition to the illegal population. Um, you know, conservatively kind of guesstimating. Well, again, that adds up year after year. If we don't fix this next year, you're going to have the same thing. And we've actually been relatively fortunate over the past few years that the illegal population hasn't grown as much. A lot of people are suspicious saying, you know, we've been saying 11 or 12 million illegal aliens for years right. now. It can't be that. It must be double. There was some yeah. study um, that said, no, there's really 22 million illegal immigrants. Well, there aren't. I mean, there's no way there can be that many because you would see it in the school enrollment, in the uh, birth statistics, death statistics, grocery shopping statistics, everything. There's no way we're missing 10 million people. I mean, it could be 13 million. I don't know, but it's not 22 double. million. Not double. It can't be. I mean, it literally just mathematically can't be. But the reason for that, originally, the reason was Mexico kind of ran out of extra people in rural Mexico. There just aren't many uh, working age men left in rural Mexico. It's emptied out because Mexico went through, in the 90s especially, and then in the you know first part of the 2000s, Mexico went through the same process that we did when farmers moved to the city that China is seeing now that Europe saw, you know, uh, 150 years ago to 100 years ago. In other words, farmers moving to the city. This is what developed. You know, when countries develop, that's what happens. Well, Mexico doesn't have that many people left in the countryside. They've all moved. A lot of them have moved here to our cities. Obviously, many have moved to their own cities. And so what that meant was that even though Mexican illegal immigration did continue, I don't want to oversell that. There's still, even now, significant Mexican illegal immigration, but it's a lot less of it. And not insignificant number of people went home. Um, there's a good amount of churn. So that the illegal population during the Obama administration kind of was sort of steady within a million or so. What we're seeing now potentially is a reversal of that so that now this Central American flow and in smaller part, uh, Cubans, Haitians, people from Africa and India and elsewhere are basically undoing that.
process that we saw where the, Mex the illegal population was stable and we're now getting significant numbers of new illegal uh, immigrants coming here. And uh, they're just, you know, if they, if let's say they have a hearing, an immigration hearing, you know, two years from now, well, you know, the kids are going to go to school. Uh, if a mom brings them, she might end up having another kid here in the U.S. who's a U.S. citizen. They're going to get a job. They'll probably join a church somewhere. And, uh, you know, then how do you deport them? Uh, I mean, this this really is a problem that the opponents of the president have been saying no longer exists. That illegal immigration pretty much has stopped. The population isn't increasing much. They're all, you know, rooted here. They've been here for right. many years. So why don't we just rip off the Band-Aid, give them amnesty, and get it over with? Well, that wasn't entirely true when they were saying it, and it's a whole lot less true now. Yeah, and um, when we're talking about the contrast between illegal immigration from Mexico and these other countries, as you mentioned, what's driving it now? Is the situation worsening in these other countries, the Central, Central American countries? Um, and we, you mentioned also other countries like India, Pakistan, uh, certain countries in Africa. Are the, is the situation worse there that people are being motivated to make this journey? Or is it just uh, the, that the change in the policy or the, the lack of enforcement, of, the lack of a, effective enforcement of our immigration laws is creating an opportunity? And as you said, uh, sometimes these types of tricks or tips are being put on radio advertisements in these countries. What do you think it is that's really kind of changing in these countries to motivate people to, to make this effort? Yeah, people are not being pushed out. They're being pulled in by our own policies that incentivize them. This is not to say that Central America, where most of this is coming from, especially the three northern countries of Central America, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, it's not to say these are great places. They're crummy places. But the murder rate, for instance, is something they point to. You know, violence is out of control. And the Democrats say these people are all refugees. We just have to let them all in. Well, the fact is the murder rate has been declining in those three countries. We did a uh, blog post on this and just looked at the government statistics. This isn't to say they don't still have high crime rates. They do. Those societies are, frankly, in trouble. I mean, they're, uh, they're very unsettled places. But in a sense, they're less unsettled than they were a few years ago, but the numbers have been going up. Likewise, another explanation that the uh, anti-borders people and the Democrats, but I repeat myself, have <laughs> been making is that this is global warming. It's almost right. like global warming is the answer for everything. You know, it's, uh, um, you know, my, my, my car isn't getting good enough mileage. It must be global warming. <laughs> You know, my uh, my kids, my kid isn't getting good grades. Must be global warming. Well, what they're saying here, and um, is that well, is that uh, you know, agricultural output is being affected by climate change, and people have uh, you know, people are being driven off the land. Well, we just did a post on this. I think it was last week, maybe the week before, uh, looking at agricultural output. And one of uh, my staff, who actually used to be a financial analyst. Um, in uh, agricultural commodities, he, he knew where to look for the numbers. Agriculture output's actually been going up pretty significantly among mm -hmm. all of the top crops in those countries, including rice and beans, uh, you know, the actual things you need as staples. So whatever agricultural problems, you know, it could well be people are, you know, land, the farmland is being consolidated. We didn't look into that aspect of it. It could be, but, um, Climate change is not driving these people. Essentially, it's not. It's not like the Irish potato famine. That's that's the story right. that the other side wants to say. People are starving. There's no food, and so they have to go somewhere. B.S. It's just not happening. So, you know, conditions in the country that would lead you to want to leave clearly are a necessary precondition. Because if you're if everything's coming up clover for you and you know uh, you're, the schools are good and nobody's bugging you and you're making decent money and everybody's okay well then you're not going to want to leave so obviously things have to be crummy to want to leave whether it's Central America or Cuba or India or anywhere else but 
the that's a not a sufficient condition, as they say. In other words, you have to have that, but that's not enough to get people to um, go two thousand miles from Central America to San Diego. Let alone, yes. yeah, let alone longer distances. It has there has to be at our end the um, incentive that you can actually get away with it, because even if we are better at enforcing our laws and actually fix some of these loopholes, there are still people who are going to try. No question about it. But a mass phenomenon like we're seeing, essentially, this is a mass migration in a short period of time of huge numbers of people from a relatively you know, concentrated area. That's only possible because they know they can get away with it. The costs of it, not just the dollar costs, but the likelihood of success in that sense, or the likelihood of failing is lower uh, than it's ever been. And so you'd almost be crazy not to try it. And um, that's what we're seeing. You have been noting a shift of tone uh, in some unlikely areas like the New York Times uh, kind of talked or put an editorial out there about giving President Trump and his administration money in order to work towards solving the border crisis, which I think six months ago they were denying there even was a crisis and splashing across their headlines constantly, no crisis, no crisis, uh, of course, in the run-up to um, the election and trying to, I would say, take away President Trump's signature issue. Why do you think there's a shift in tone on this? Yeah, it's definitely interesting. I mean, um, you have a lot of Democrats, uh, including the New York Times, uh, have been saying all along, there's no crisis and it's Trump's fault. You know, it's like, well, which is it? But, um, but it's gotten bad enough that, like you said, the New York Times actually ran an editorial saying, give Trump his border money or something like that. And because the, there's a supplemental funding request, in other words, an extra funding request separate from the main budget because they can't wait that long that the administration has submitted. And some of it is for a basically you know, humanitarian spending. In other words, increase the capacity for the Border Patrol to actually deal with these people. Because, you know, I mean, they got these kids, they can't just sort of set them loose. They're minors. They're legally prohibited from just saying, okay, here, you know, just uh, get out of here. They've got wander a hand. Their What's that? Just wander off. Yeah, yeah, they can't do that. I mean, they're legally barred from that. They have to hold on to, especially if they're minors, they have to hold on to them until they figure out who they are and deliver them to some responsible authority. Well, they don't have places to put them. I mean, literally, they have nowhere to put these people, and they need some basic medical screening. We're talking about Central America. This is a place that makes Mexico look like it's Denmark. Um, it's much less developed than Mexico. So you've got people who don't have inoculations. It's almost certain this spread of measles that we're seeing across the country is at least partly driven by this border crisis. So my point is the president is asking for extra money, not only to deal with those aspects, sort of the humanitarian aspects, but extra money for detention as well. And because you got to hold on to people uh, if you're going to actually um, be able to send them home when they lose their asylum claims, as they almost all will. And um, you got, and, and if you don't, you're not going to be able to send them home and more people will come. So this has gotten to such a level where, um, like you said, the New York Times, and I haven't heard that many politicians, though, say that this is a problem. What I've heard is former political figures. For instance, Jay Johnson, who was Obama's second uh, secretary of Homeland Security. He was yes. there until the Obama administration ended. And I disagree with him on a lot of stuff, but he's not a flake. I mean, he's kind of a serious guy in, in some respects. And he's been willing to go on TV and say, look, this really is a crisis. You know, if I got a notification that a thousand illegal immigrants had been apprehended the day before when I get my more, you know, when I got my morning briefing, that was pretty serious. <clears throat> We're getting more than a thousand a day now. So he's been willing to say that the president really does, you know, he's this, this is a real thing. Claire McCaskill, believe it or not, the senator who lost from Missouri, Democrat senator, she was defeated by Josh Hawley, and, and frankly, Missouri, uh, you know, 
is a lot better off, quite honestly. But, right. but she was just on MSNBC last week saying, you know, disagreeing with all the talking heads over there about how, you know, orange man bad and it's all, you know, Satan's making it all up. And she was like, no, this is a real thing, folks. You know, we need to we need to be serious about this. I think that what you're seeing is people who are not in office. There was also a, a Washington Post columnist, Glenn Kessler, is a blogger, a lefty blogger who wrote something to the same effect that the Democrats need to be able to need to have to say something about this because those people aren't up for election. And they, I think, see themselves as freer to say, this is going to blow up in our faces, fellas, if we don't do something about it. The elected officials are kind of constrained because their own base is so deranged by Trump. I mean, I don't think, I mean, I don't think crazy is uh, an overstatement. <laughs> adequate. <laughs> Look, yeah, it's not adequate. I mean, you probably know people like this. I, I mean, I've lost, oh, yes. I've lost at least one friend over this. And because they're just unhinged. I mean, this is, it's, it's really almost hard to believe. It's like, we didn't go this crazy when Obama was elected. Right. What is your problem? Right. I mean, you're sure there were some people, he was born in Kenya and all that stuff. That's kind of fringy stuff. This is the mainstream of the Democratic Party has gone insane because of Trump. And so they cannot come out and say that, hey, this really is a crisis and we need to give the president the resources and the tools he needs to deal with it, because that means they would be normalizing, you know, the, the evil authoritarian blah, blah, blah in the White House. And they're either going to overcome that. Or they are going to get, they are going to really pay a price next year. Uh, I'm kind of keeping my fingers crossed that the crazies stay in charge for another year because, you know, they're going to delegitimize themselves. And we can only hope that there's going to be a presidential candidate that they select who's a complete wackadoodle on this issue. Um, that might be uh asking for too much because even the democrats might wise up over you know if there's another year of this but we can always hope well and joe biden himself had some pretty strong comments in the past against illegal immigration but i think you draw a really interesting contrast between uh the democrats who are out of office and are freer to speak their minds about what they're seeing, particularly Jay Johnson with his experience uh, in dealing with this particular issue. And you contrast that with the 2020 candidates who I think want to make hay about uh, this this idea of family separation in the inhumanity of President Trump and the Republican Party. And I think if they were to give an inch on that, they believe that they would lose their best ammunition against him. And part of that is, uh, I think it's interesting because when the, the press started going crazy about family separation, the uh, administration Unlike many other times when they've been criticized about policies, it seemed to catch them either unawares or they had, I would say as kind of an outside observer, they had a reaction to the family separation narrative that was different than the reaction that they had to other criticisms on policies that they had. Um, and I, I think it's interesting, too, because we're seeing not only the 2020 presidential candidates, the New York Times, um, and the contrast with former Democrats, everybody's taking this a little bit different. Last week, uh, Charlie Munger of Berkshire Hathaway and Warren Buffett fame was interviewed and had some things to say about the history of immigration and where we are now. Could you give us your thoughts on that interview a little bit? Sure. Uh, Charlie Munger is kind of uh, Warren Buffett's pal, you know, going way back. I mean, he's got money of his own, but he's not in that league at all of um, Buffett. But he's, you know, kind of a guy that, um, I mean, they've worked together. They are simpatico. And so, and frankly, both of them, including Warren Buffett, were kind of left of center immigration restrictionists. Buffett, well, I mean, Buffett is, you know, he's been a critic of high immigration, um, especially because of uh, 
he's kind of used to be anyway, I don't know if he still is, kind of a population control guy. That's kind of where it came from. So it's not a complete surprise, but Munger, you know, he said, look, you can't just have unlimited immigration from people of people from different cultures. It's just not it's not going to work. And I think that got attention because it was Munger and because he publicly said it, because both Buffett and Munger haven't talked about immigration in many, many years since it became, um, you know, kind of more of a controversial issue. They've sort of backed away from it. So what was surprising is not so much that. Charlie Munger is worried about situation at the border, but that he feels free to talk about it, uh, you know, talk about it in a way publicly to reporters in a way that that, you know, Buffett and his circle have avoided doing for, you know, 25 years, even though I don't think their views have changed. They uh, probably my uh -huh. guess is they kind of foresaw what you're seeing now with um you know, um, shaming people and uh, deplatforming them and all the rest of it. And so they kind of just backed away from talking about the issue. So my point is, Munger talking publicly about this is another indication that people, at least on the center left, uh, are seeing that this is both a policy problem that we do have to deal with, but also a political problem that potentially can blow up in the face of the Democrats. Your organization did some research uh, a while ago, maybe a couple years ago, about the cost of helping people settle in the United States versus helping them, uh, for example, in the Middle East. Uh, and I think it was specifically related to ethnic minorities in the Middle East who were being uh, injured, killed, ethnically cleansed by ISIS, and uh, related to Syria as well. And the research, which I found was so interesting and should be so obvious to everyone, but the number I feel is very stark, was that for every one person that you brought from the Middle East and set up in the United States, you could instead, with that same amount of money, help 12 people to survive in the Middle East. And I think it's a really important thing to reflect on when we have these very serious discussions about immigration, that it's not obvious that the humanitarian answer is to have open borders and to allow anyone who's willing to make the journey to come and be part of the American experiment, that there is an idea that there is if you're actually talking about humanitarian responses to the world's problems, uh, maybe that is not the right answer, the most humanitarian or moral answer for uh, what we as Americans can do to help others, which, you know, America is an extremely generous nation. Uh, it has a very strong ethic of uh, caring about other people, you know, individuals too, not just entire countries. So I was wondering if you could give us your thoughts about that idea in relation to what we're talking about in, in illegal immigration today. Sure. Uh, our report specifically was about refugee resettlement. That's what we're talking about. We looked at refugees from the Middle East who are brought here and then what it costs, what the United Nations itself says it costs to take care of refugees in the countries where they've taken their first shelter, you know, say Syrians in Turkey or Lebanon or Jordan, for instance. And the I actually got the idea from something I saw in the New York Times, believe it or not, where a Norwegian uh, writer or commentator, I'm not even sure what he was, made the, this very point. He said it costs way more. He's, he made up some number of 27 times more to bring a refugee to Norway. It could be because they have a much more, I mean, it's possible because it's yes. a much more generous welfare state. But I looked into it and there was no research backing that up. I think he just kind of made the number up. So I said, well, let's see what it is for us. And so um, my research director, Steve Camerata, who's our number cruncher, he's a master number cruncher at this stuff, he spent several months doing this because you've got to look at all of not just the federal costs of bringing refugees here, but the state and local welfare costs, too, because refugees are eligible for all welfare uh, from the moment they get here on the same basis as citizens because they're coming in under that status of refugees. 
So and and the states pay most of that, but it's still taxpayers paying it. So added up, spent several months doing it, and the conclusion he came to is that it costs twelve times as much. The five-year cost of resettling a refugee in the U.S. is five times greater. I mean, it's twelve times greater than re- than taking care of somebody in a UN facility in the Middle East. Now, it's a lot better to come here right. than it is yes. to stay there. There's no question about that, but that's not what this is about. Refugee resettlement, refugee protection is about helping the, should be about helping the largest number of people doing the most good with whatever amount of money we decide through our elected representatives to spend on this. You want to spend your own money, do whatever you want. But a refugee brought here is, that's a government process, a government program, and we are all on the hook for that. This is not you're sending your $25 a month to help someone abroad. This is your tax money being used for um, food stamps and Medicare and what have public housing and what have you. And unfortunately, the way a refugee system works now, and this is not the case after World War II, it was very different. We had a lot of refugees then from Europe. Then, if you were sponsoring a refugee family, say it was a college or a church, You sponsored one family and you were totally on the hook for all their costs. It was direct personal charity. Right. Sacrificial charity. So, you know, the women of the church would get together and set up the mom with a household. And the dad would get a janitorial job or maybe one of the members of the church would find a job for him. The point is, it was a direct relationship. It would be like one family, maybe two they would be embraced by whatever the community was, the church or the, or the university or whoever it was. And that worked, but that can't work on a mass scale. We've changed our system, starting with the 1980 Refugee Act in the wake of Vietnam, to mass refugee resettlement, where sponsorship doesn't really mean what you think it means, where the um, State Department actually pays these resettlement groups Catholic Charities has one, Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, Lutheran Immigrant Refugee Services, uh, Episcopal Migration Services, I think it's called, and there's a few others. Um, And what they do is they pay them per head to bring refugees to the United States, and they're responsible for them for a few months, at which point they sign them up for welfare and leave and go get the next batch. So the point is the taxpayer is on the hook. This is not just individual charity. So the costs we're talking about are not the costs uh, incurred by people voluntarily helping others. This is tax money taken from you at the point of a gun. And that if we're going to spend tax money, the people's money that we take from them for refugee protection, it should be doing the most good that you can with that money. And if you are resettling people here, the analogy I use is you have 12 hungry people and resettling here means you take one of them almost at random. Maybe they bribed their way because there's big bribery scandals now at the refugee centers abroad where the UN takes money in order to put your name forward to be resettled. But the point is, however it happens, we pick one and give him caviar where the other 11 don't get anything instead of and this is a metaphor, it's not real caviar, instead of (laughs) giving all 12 of those people rice and beans. The caviar, if you like caviar, is better than the rice and beans. But the point is we're feeding 12 people instead of one. And I got to say, refugee resettlement really is morally problematic. I mean, I I wrote a piece, refugee resettlement is immoral, because I think it is. We do it for selfish reasons. We do it to make ourselves feel better, even though it actually doesn't help as many people as we could. I mean, the analogy, uh, I mean, the, the um, parable from Scripture that I think of is the Pharisee and the tax collector in the temple, where the Pharisee is there standing up in the middle of the temple proudly, loudly saying, thank you, God for making me such a great guy and I give charity to the temple and I'm not like these losers, including this loser <laughs> tax collector there. And the tax collector won't even look up. It beats his chest and says, you know, Lord, forgive me. I'm a sinner. Well, 
refugee resettlement is the Pharisee standing in the middle of the temple saying, I'm so great, I'm doing all of this good, because you're not doing good. It's a refugee resettlement is a selfish act on our part. It sounds un, sounds unlikely because at least because one person or one family certainly is benefiting from it. There's no question about that. But it is a selfish act because we're doing it to make ourselves feel better, so that we can actually see the person we're helping instead of not seeing the twelve people we could have been helping, so that we can feel better about ourselves, and so that the people doing that can feel their contempt for those who don't agree with it. I mean, it really is, uh, I got to say, I mean, maybe despicable is too strong a word, but refugee, there is absolutely no justification for large-scale refugee resettlement. Only in those small number of cases, and the UN tracks how many cases there are, where there's an actual emergency need, an immediate need to remove somebody and nowhere else for them to go. There are cases like that, but we could take every case like that and still take fewer refugees than we're taking now, even with the lower refugee numbers that we're seeing under President Trump. I definitely want to link in this post to your piece about that, because I have long held that opinion and you just explained it so well and i haven't read that piece that you wrote but i really like to read it because i do think uh i i think the the example you gave of the pharisee and the tax collector is so on point because it is it is optics versus reality of how many people you're helping and so so we've kind of set up the problem here i i always want to end on solutions the white house has an immigration plan uh, we can talk about the pros and cons, and I just want to get your thoughts. How do we get out of this situation that we find ourselves in with illegal immigration? It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be able to happen overnight because when you have these kind of refugee emergencies or you know migration emergencies, if you nip them in the bud, you can, in fact, turn them around pretty quickly. The problem is that this has been building, this um, flow of supposedly unaccompanied minors who really are smuggled, their relatives pay for them to be smuggled, so they're not unaccompanied, it's, it's just a, um, it's a legal dodge, or these family units, they call them, in other words, at least one adult with at least one kid. That flow really started when Obama issued his DACA ruling, if you remember that back in 2012, his yes. uh, illegal amnesty for kids of illegal aliens. That seems to have been the spark, not because any of the new illegal immigrants would have qualified, but it clearly sent the message that kids of illegals could get amnesty. And so illegal immigrants here started paying smugglers to bring their kids up. Uh, and then, you know, say, hey, I'm unaccompanied. And of course, I have my parents' phone number and email address right here. Why don't you call them? Um, I mean, literally, that's how it worked. So, uh, and then family members, too. It started really in 2012. It broke into the public consciousness in 2014, when, again, the same people now who are saying, boy, there really is a crisis, in 2014, started saying the same thing, that, look, this, you know, this is, this is starting to get out of control. The Obama administration clamped down a little bit, and the numbers went down some. They got Mexico to cooperate some, and it um, it did reduce the numbers. But immediately the next year, it just went back up. Uh, and then Trump was nominated. Uh, Trump was elected. Numbers went down pretty significantly, but only for a short time. And then they resumed their climb. So this is my point here: is that this has been building for like six or seven years, and something like that doesn't is develops a momentum of its own and it becomes harder to turn around the longer it's been going on but it can be done there are some things the administration can do that it hasn't done yet um, that it might be able to get away with I mean that's the problem is they're stopped at every turn um, there's talk now of setting up uh, tent facilities tent cities basically the army has the capacity for this to set up tent cities to increase detention capacity, in other words, to keep people in place. 
Obviously, there's going to be a lawsuit as soon as that happens. In fact, there'll be a, a, a blizzard, a campaign of lawsuits to try to prevent it. So the administration has to decide, you know, is that even worth doing? Because it's not clear you're going to be able to detain everybody. For instance, last month, this is in April, there were more than 50,000 people who came in these what they call family units, in other words, adults with kids. Well, if we increase detention capacity and hold all 50,000 of them, then what about the next month's worth? You know what I mean? Right. So I'm not sure that we can actually detain our way out of this. Um, the real problem, the core issue, is the loopholes in the law. I had mentioned earlier that provision that says any minor has to be released after 20 days. Yes. There's also a, another provision where minors, um, supposedly unaccompanied minors, uh, can't be returned immediately if they don't come from Mexico or Canada. In other words, countries that don't border on the U.S., there's a whole extra layer of falderall you have to go through to return people. Well, we're getting Central Americans. So there are, loop, there are legal loopholes like that that Congress has to fix in order for us to be able to get a handle on this. The, there, there's just a limit to what the administration can do. And the, what's important, I think, here is that the president needs to explain to the public at every turn that this border crisis is brought on by Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi. In other words, they this is the Schumer-Pelosi border disaster. And the president needs to make that point every time he opens his mouth. Because, you know, things like this don't penetrate because not everybody watches the news all the time. The point is, you need to say it over and over and over again. Because otherwise, a lot of voters are going to blame the president. They're going to say, well, you're president. Why aren't you fixing this? Right, exactly. Yeah, and, and like I said, there are, you know, the president himself was frustrated by this. This is what, this is what um, impelled the recent um, shakeup at Homeland Security, where the secretary was basically fired. Yes, uh, and you know that's fine. Uh, but I think the president is still working on the um, kind of the uh, his TV show, you know, the Apprentice model of uh, <laughs> management, where if you don't get the job done, you're fired. Well, fired uh, Congress. <laughs> yeah. Well. Yeah. Exactly. Um, the you know. Kirsten Nielsen, who was Secretary of Homeland Security, was fired. She really needed to be fired. She needed to have been fired months ago. Um, it's not clear her replacement, who was the head of the border portion of DHS, basically has moved up and is acting secretary now. He may or may not keep that job. It's not clear he's going to do any better. I talked with him last week, and, you know, he's got plans for what he's going to do, and it sounds good. Um you know, here's hoping, but I, there's a limit to what they can do. We're also, the administration is also pressuring Mexico with some initial modest success to do a better job of enforcing its own rules because these are people sneaking through Mexico, not even sneaking, honestly. A right. lot of times they're helped brazen. by Mexican authorities. Yeah, it's quite yeah. brazen. So, you know, they are in fact deporting more Central Americans. Uh, that's a good sign. But their main concern seems to be the optics of it. This is why they've been cracking down on these caravans. There was a big caravan, uh, this was a month ago, maybe a month and a half ago, that made it to the Texas border, and they detained all of them. But they didn't send them back. They just parceled them out by bus in little bits along other parts of the border and then said, okay, well, whatever. <laughs> in other words, they were worried about news coverage of right. you know a thousand people storming the border where there's cameras um you know to record it and you know the president has made threats about shutting down the border crossings that sort of thing and they want to avoid that so even pressure on mexico is going to be of limited utility again it's um mexico is seeing its own internal incentives change because when all these people crossed through Mexico and they kept going, it wasn't that big a deal. They got to feel good about themselves. As long as they're out by sundown, what did the Mexicans care? Well, a lot of them are now stuck in Mexico. And Mexicans, Mexico doesn't want any more Central Americans any more than we do. Um, in fact, the mayor of Tijuana, which is kind of the end of the line for a lot of these people, the mayor of Tijuana um, 
came out a few months ago because his own constituents were so angry at all of these people, of Central Americans. He came out at an event with a red baseball cap that said, Make Tijuana Great Again. <laughs> you can actually order them. Somebody ordered one for me. I mean, just from, you know, Cafe Press or one of those places. Um, and uh, the border mayors are really, um, you know, they're, they're screaming about this. They, they, they can't deal with it. I mean, they've, you know, they've got to deal with these people. They've got to put them up somehow. There's law enforcement issues, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, it's not impossible that we could lessen this problem without cooperation from Congress, but uh, there's not much, it's not, it, there's not a lot of hope for that, honestly. Maybe the edge can be taken off so it won't be quite as bad and maybe it won't go up one month to the next. It'll go, you know, a flat line maybe. But until Congress changes these, fixes these loopholes, this is going to remain a serious crisis. And I just have no confidence that Nancy Pelosi is going to be willing to change it. I mean, I could see in the Senate maybe getting enough Democrats to go along with something the Republicans did to let something pass if they were afraid enough of the political consequences. But in the House, they would have to initiate the legislation themselves. And it would be a bill that would pass with all Republican votes and a few Democrat votes, for instance, something to fill these loopholes. How is Nancy Pelosi going to be able to explain to her, you know, to the three stooges, to AOC and the two, um, uh, um, yes. uh, the others, uh, the, what's her name, Talib and uh, Omar, and the rest of that crowd? How is she going to be able to get away with moving a Republican bill, basically, through the House on immigration? And how, you know, she would face a, a challenge, a, a leadership challenge, I think. So I just don't think this is going to be solvable until the Democrats get kicked in the behind really hard by voters. Um, I just don't see how the political dynamics can work any other way. Maybe, you know, I hope I'm wrong because I actually do want this fixed, even though it's politically damaging for the Democrats, because it's a policy matter. This is really bad. But I don't hold out a lot of hope that the Democrats are going to grow up and be willing to deal with this uh, before they really get punched in the face by voters next November. So I think there are two major takeaways from our informative and fun discussion, Mark. First is that President Trump needs to be out there every time he talks about this, pointing out to voters that this is the Schumer-Pelosi border crisis, right? Yeah. And then secondly, we all need to look to Congress and specifically to the House Democrats to uh, work towards solving this problem might be unlikely, but that's where the solution to this problem is going to originate. Yeah, that's uh, that's the long and the short of it. Um, I wish I had a better answer for you, but um, this is I think this is going to get worse before it gets better. Thank you, Mark, so much for joining us. Where can people find you online? Our uh, my my uh, center for immigration studies that I'm the director of is online at CIS. S as in Sam, CIS.org. We have a blog and we put longer research. There's always something, pretty much every day, there's new stuff there. And then I'm on Twitter for people who like snark and sarcasm <laughs> at, um, at Mark S as in Stephen, Mark S. Krikorian. Uh, and if you just sort of Google Mark Krikorian Twitter, you know, you'll probably find it. And I usually, I mean, I, I tweet probably more than I should, but, you know, if I wake up at three o'clock in the morning, I'll. I'll go through my Twitter feed and start tweeting. So um, so anyway, like I said, if you have a taste for that sort of thing, Twitter is the place to go for the uh, research and substantive stuff, uh, cis.org. And, you know, if you've got a couple of nickels um, in your pocket, we also have a donate button there for anybody who's so inclined. Yes, absolutely. Think of all the months that you've put into trying to find the research particularly on that 12 for one 
resettlement, refugee, refugee resettlement research. I think that, I mean, we, we complain that all the research is done by the left and that uh, there, there aren't statistics out there from, from the right, but you are in the trenches and your organization is doing this work on the benefit, for the benefit of all Americans so that they have the information and they can be informed voters and decide what kind of country we want. We thank you so much for that, Mark, and we hope everyone will go to the donate button and support your organization's excellent work. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. This is Gail Trotter. You can like me on Facebook. You can follow me on Twitter. You can follow me on Instagram. Please subscribe to my YouTube channel. You can subscribe to this podcast right in DC on iTunes and you can leave a review. Most important, you can support this podcast on Patreon. We have great t-shirts as gifts for patrons courtesy of Hard Hits Custom Apparel. We would also like to thank Trio Caliente, a local DC group for music on the podcast. This is Right in DC. You're Right in DC with Gail Trotter.